And as you're sitting down, would you just pray with me really quick? Oh, Lord, would you do work on our hearts now by your word? As Pastor John said, you have gathered us. You have pursued us. Because there is good news that we can rest in your finished work. That it is finished, that you are risen. And we are now by faith, by simple faith, just trust. We are united to you through Christ, your son, and all of his benefits. Confer those to us upon us now. Holy Spirit, work. Do surgery on our hearts. As Christ is risen, raise us up from the death in our lives as well and set our sights on you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we might know even in the chaos of this world that we too will rise again. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here. Almost feels like church. I mean, I'm really glad you're here, folks. Uh, One year ago, right, everything changed. One year ago, you weren't here. One year ago, I wasn't here because we pre-recorded the service. Preaching to empty rooms. And so even though it's kind of a pastor-y thing to say, I'm glad you're here, like, I'm really glad you're here. That's sweeter this year. A friend of mine, Pastor Matt Odom, said, this is the best Easter ever to talk about the resurrection. Because as we gather, we're like a living word picture of it. Life has entered back into the building. And this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection and its power through the work of Jesus Christ. And we are going to be reminded by Paul, uh, through our text, that death itself is now in its grave. But it's easy to be skeptical about these things, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's okay. Christianity isn't having it all together. It's wrestling with God. It's wrestling in relationship with God. So imagine if you were in the mail to receive a letter. Now, scams are everywhere. Have you been scammed yet? Like 48 times by email, by phone. I mean, they're going to try to get you in any way they can. It's really insidious and unfortunate. But imagine that you were to receive a letter in the mail from a lawyer, you know, on legal stationery with an official seal, you know, Schneeberger, Schneeberger, and Standridge, and Sons, Esquire. And it was on, you know, the official letterhead and all that. And in this letter, you you come to find out that, you know, sweet Aunt Bethel, your long-lost German relative, lived in such a frugal way that she has bequeathed to you now this massive inheritance. And it kind of looked real, and it, it kind of looked legit. Now, you would, be, you would be right to be very skeptical of such a letter were it to arrive in your mailbox. And as I was preparing this sermon, this illustration, of course, the irony is yesterday I, I wake up, uh, we're getting ready here to take a little, a little family, you know, spring break trip. We're going to go out to San Diego. We'll be praying for you, I'm sure, on the beach. Lord bless them, right? And uh, (laughs) you're welcome. Well, now I got to pray for you, huh, Marie? Okay, good, good, yeah. Few of you need more prayer than others, so that's fine. And I, you know, we're doing all, I'm doing full dad mode, you know, travel dad, like check on this and this and turn this on and turn this off and call these, all this stuff. And I check the bank and lo and behold, there are four charges for $600 each for new cell phones in Amsterdam. Oh, the Dutch. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, it's like, are you kidding me? A day before we leave, 
There's just scams everywhere. So we're right to be skeptical about a claim like this, that the Son of God came in flesh, lived a perfect life, died the death that you and I deserve, and rose again from the dead to be vindicated and seal and guarantee all of the benefits of that death. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. And you go, how am I still in my sins? What about the cross? He had to rise for all of those things to be guaranteed and his kingship to be vindicated. You'd be skeptical if you got that letter from a lawyer in the mail, no matter how legitimate it looked. But if the offer was really good, I mean, if Aunt Bethel had left you a lot of money, not just like five burrito money, but like, you know, unending joys sort of money, you'd be skeptical, but you'd look into it. I mean, you'd look into it. Because if the offer was that good, you know, oh man, Aunt Bethel left it all to me in Bitcoin. All I need to do is, you know, enter my social security. No, don't do that. But you'd look into it. Well, the resurrection is like that. You know, last week we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. On Friday, we were with our Lord at the cross. The cross was shrouded with a black robe. And this morning it's bursting forth with the light of flowers because today is Easter. And let's do it again. He is risen. Amen. And that's why we're here. So I love this line of this song that we'll hear during communion. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys. To hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man, Jesus Christ, laid death in his grave. That is good news. It's worth looking into. So however you come this morning, maybe you had a great week, maybe you had a horrible week, maybe your, your conscience is pinging you and you have regret or guilt or sadness, brokenness, shame, trauma. Maybe you're just doing great and you think it's weird that other people feel that way. However you come, there is good news for you here today because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. It's worth looking into. In our residence this morning, you'll see a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. And I love it. He said, look, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything the guy said. You have to accept it all. No Jesus buffet. You got to do the Kung Pao and the Mongolian. But if he didn't rise, that's not in the quote, by the way. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? I mean, if he didn't rise, if he's just a, you know, a good moral teacher who's made all these wild claims and died, forget it. Look, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like all of his teachings, because I like most of them, but sometimes they kind of get my heart and convict me and hurt a bit. Issue's not whether you like them, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If it isn't true, forget it. But if it is, if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, I want to commend to us again that it changes everything. I mean, it really does change everything about who you are, why you are, how you are, how to deal with your own brokenness, how to live a life of joy, and how to live forever. It changes everything. Now, the Apostle Paul is quick in our first paragraph here to remind us that the resurrection is a, was a real historical event. And it was a public display. 
Indeed, there were many people alive in that day who could have easily repudiated the stories or produced the body or a variety of other things. Beyond that, it would have made no sense that women were the first eyewitnesses or that the disciples went on to suffer and die if they knew that it was a lie. Paul gives us a rational argument. He says the resurrection was real. There's empirical evidence around it. You can go and find out. It's falsifiable. And I'd love to talk with you more about that, by the way. We can have a nice long coffee or whatever you want to do to talk about the evidence, strong evidence for the resurrection. It's a real historical event, but it's more than that. It's not only rational, but for you and me here today, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it is deeply existential. It pertains to your existence. It makes a difference for you, for me, for Paul. And I was pondering on that this week. You know, if Jesus raised, then, then there's hope for someone like me. Because I know myself better than you know me. And in my house, I have many mirrors. Sometimes it's easy to hide from others, but you can't hide from yourself. You know that you need help. You know about your past. You know about your present ongoing struggles, your worries and uncertainty about the future, the voices in your head that tend to condemn, the impending reality of death, the loss of a friend or a loved one, broken relationships. If the resurrection is true, then there really is hope on our darkest days. There really is justice for the weak and the oppressor. There really will be consequences for those who are evil. They don't just get to live a fat cat life, eat, drink, and be married tomorrow I die, and then vanish into annihilation consequence-free. Above all, if the resurrection is true, then it means that Jesus actually did what he set out to do for me. And as a pastor, I don't like to talk too much about me when I'm preaching, but I want to relay to us just the existential import of this. He is risen isn't some, you know, abstract reality. A universal fact that comes to bear upon us, you know, one Sunday a year. But it means that you're known by name, you're loved, you're cared for, you're adopted. You too are part of the fruits of God's tree. The first fruits is Christ and then you are brought in. Resurrection Sunday should make us all say, thank you, Jesus. You know we got a lot of stuff going on in our life. Plenty of things we'd rather fix or control or just get rid of altogether, but thank you, Jesus. That's why Paul in verse 1 of our text says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached. This is the thing that's most important. We never graduate from it. We never get off it. We never move on. And that's just what I want to do this morning. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a different message, topical. We're doing a one-off on 1 Corinthians 15, but I just want us to hear together the good news this morning. And every week as John and I prepare and study and get into the text, we're always praying, Jesus, meet us here with your good news and your gospel in this text. There is such great joy in the resurrection. Not only that you're saved from sin and death, but so much more. There's a new humanity, a way to be healed and whole, and a way to experience those realities now because he is risen. Now, if all that's true, <laughs> I love these guys, man. That's why I love the Corinthians. I mean, what a bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> I mean, they're just like us. They're just like us. 
You know, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. It's basically a book in which he is responding to, to five major issues in the church. Can you imagine that? A church with issues. So soon in the first century, there's nothing new under the sun. And he's responding to a variety of complaints and a letter from Chloe's household and then some general stuff. I just love the Corinthians. I mean, they're really having a hard time, guys. They really are. The letter unfolds like this. Basically, their first squabble is about who the cool kids are. Who are the best preachers in the church? Some like Apollos. Oh, yeah, he uses great illustrations. Oh, but Peter, manuscripts, his words are really incredible. Well, but there's Paul. I mean, you know, he knows all this Jewish stuff. And they have a fight about who the best preacher is. The next thing is about human sexuality. People are just kind of wanting to do whatever they want to do. You got a guy in a church hooking up with his mom and people, I mean, it's some weird stuff. It's weird. Well, then they're arguing about food. You know, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, I'm strong. I can eat whatever I want. Well, I'm weak. You can't eat anything if I don't want you to. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, how about you just learn to love each other? Come together around that. And then lastly, we get to this bit about the resurrection. <laughs> they can't even get that right. And so you have this little group in Corinth who's basically saying, ah, no, it's too much. We can't believe that. I mean, really, people, it is, after all, the year, you know, whatever, 60 AD, 2021. We're a sophisticated bunch. This is Corinth. It's not some backwoods, backwater, Jerusalem, Sinai, Nazareth thing. You know, with a bunch of hicks running around with beards and tassels, you know, screaming out Hebrew. This is Corinth. We have skyscrapers and temples and investment bankers and priests and money, and we're a port city, and we know how to get it done. We're an educated bunch. So for a group in the church, the resurrection was just proving to be a little too far. A little silly, perhaps. You see, ancient people weren't dumb. So we have to scrape that out of our minds, like, oh, they all would have just been led astray by this teaching that a Jewish carpenter was the king of kings and the lord of lords and rose in a body from the dead. They would have been quick to say that was utter foolishness. Even if someone had risen from the dead, the, the dominant religious paradigm in Corinth and the entire Greco-Roman world is that whatever afterlife there is, it's, it's certainly not in a new resurrection body that was your body now transformed. And the best you can hope for is to be a little spirit, you know, bouncing around either Hades or heaven and hoping that the God of those quarters is nice enough to keep you around. The problem in Corinth is the same problem we have. It really is. It really is. Because people are always trying to tame Jesus. Always trying to make Jesus and what he did just a little more acceptable to the world around us. A little more palatable to the elite of Corinth. This is really the heart of what we mean when we talk about sin. To sin just means to break God's law, but our, our nature of sin means this. We want to tame Jesus. We want a Jesus that we construct. We're going to make our own little Jesus out of Legos so that we like it. 
Jesus in our image that meets our needs and just doesn't go too far for the people around us. The irony, of course, is that in our attempts to make Jesus acceptable to the standards of this world, we are so prone to forget that he didn't come to meet those standards. He came to bring a new world. That's why Paul says Christianity hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus rose, then we have to care about what he said. And he's the Lord of lords. Then what he has said is the good and the true and the beautiful life is good and true and beautiful. Then I need to turn from lesser gods that don't satisfy broken cisterns, empty wells. And I need to turn to the king who will make me whole and save me by grace through faith, not by my works. I have nowhere to boast. Christianity hinges here. And so the text begs the question of us. If it is finished, and if he is risen, what will you do with my son? Can you hear the father? The father whispers these words. What will you do with my son? In the second paragraph, Paul makes the point pretty clear. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty watertight argument. He says to this faction in Corinth, he says, look, if there is no resurrection, we have a problem. That means even Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if Jesus didn't rise, that means that you're not going to rise. And guess that what? That means life really does just reduce to power and pleasure, and you better get yours now. And what that means, Paul says, is your faith is in vain, vanity, meaningless, it's air. And if that's true, Corinthians, then you haven't found yourself some cool new little religion that you can tell your friends about at dinner parties over wine and cheese. You found yourself something utterly pitiful. And everybody knows that you're just in a cult. And not a very good one at that. Because Paul knows this, he tells them it's essential. You see, in the days of Jesus, on the Jewish side of things, there were plenty of folks, I mean, not that many, but a good number who claimed to be Messiahs. Maybe 100 years before Jesus, even some years after, there were those who claimed to be, you know, the Messiah or perhaps a rabbi with the right teaching who was going to usher in the Messianic age. But with each one of these individuals, the same story played out. You would have a group that got together, claimed that the coming was on the way, they would rise up and rebel, and the Romans would squash their rebellion with a heavy, heavy hand, an inordinate hand. And as soon as the leader of that movement was gone, as soon as the leader of that movement had died, you know what would happen? The movement went away every time. Replete historical examples of this story playing out on rotation. As soon as the leader was dead, the movement was done. So why? why? Why did the disciples of Jesus continue to not only follow him, but lay down their lives for their Lord? So many promises are made in our own day. So many promises. The question is, will they deliver? And I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, and you, again, you're wrestling with these questions. Maybe you're not a Christian. I'm so glad you're here. This is the place to ask these questions. The church isn't the place for, oh yeah, we all have it together and we're all looking good. Yeah, right, I know you people. I know that's not the truth. The church is the place to ask these questions. 
What are you putting your hope in? What promises will they deliver? Because so often there's a lot of sound and fury and leaders and front men and promises made that end up essentially signifying nothing. And the resurrection also reminds us that we don't need a, a, a you know, 10-step program to your best life now. That's really not what we most deeply need. There's nothing wrong with, you know, principles and self-improvement ideas. Those things can be extremely helpful. I'd never want to deprecate those things, but that's not what we most deeply need in our souls with our pain and our suffering and the things that we've tried so hard to get over all these years but are still a challenge. Oh, we'll just try harder. Thanks. No, instead, we need a hope that is outside of us, that is objective, that is proclaimed over us, that is given to us, that can never be taken away from us, that is rooted in history, wherein our God actually comes down to help. This week, my friend Margaret sent me this quote from a guy that some of you have heard of named Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian scholar, and he's having a conversation with another Canadian guy who's a, a religious artist. And they're having a debate, but I mean, they're like being so nice to each other, you can hardly tell. And Jordan Peterson, who has suffered greatly physically, I mean, to the point of near death in the last few years, and I don't think he's a Christian. I believe that he is currently, he would say he's an agnostic. He said this in their interview. He said, I have been repeatedly confronted with the resurrection. I can't get away from it. I cannot get around it. And as it confronts me, I have to believe either two of I have to believe either of two impossible things. Either Jesus is true, all true, or that somehow humans invented this thing that it seems to me permeates everything and make sense out of everything. The more you investigate Christ, the more insanely complicated and far-reaching it becomes, and the more we must reckon with whether or not it is true. So folks, if he is not here, if he is risen, if it is all true, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And what I'd like to do now, just in a few minutes, is give us three, I think, practical applications for what this means for our lives. His resurrection changes everything. The first thing it changes for you and me is our past. That means there's healing. If Christ is risen, there is healing for you, for your life, for your past. The story you've lived to this point is not the story that you are condemned to live. That's why I love the Bible. I, yeah, I, just, I dare you. You know, go read some of the other holy books. They don't put these kind of people in there. You know, you get, you get wise sayings and high, lofty examples. You know, the platonic form of what a human is supposed to be. You get heroes. You don't get Peter. Oh, blessed Peter. I'm so glad Peter's in the Bible for me. Maybe not for you, but I'm so glad he's in there for me. You know, we've talked about this before, and I won't go into detail, but what Peter did is really serious. 
I mean, I even strain to think of an example that would, uh, you know, really correlate to our own cultural norms because we don't live in a shame and honor society. But for, for Peter to reject, not once, twice, but three times his rabbi, for him to do it in escalating moments around the fire of the enemy, ending in his fearful rejection even to a little servant girl, this is unthinkable, this kind of betrayal and denial. Punishable by death. Certainly not something that would be recoverable if you had done that to your dear leader who you moments earlier promised to die for. And then we get James and John, the sons of thunder, and all their pride and arrogance. And can I sit at your right hand and I at your left hand in the kingdom of God, Lord? And then you get Thomas. I'm not going to believe any of this stuff unless I can see it. Thomas, who worked at Lanel. <laughs> and then you get Paul. I mean, even Paul. You've heard it a hundred times, but Paul persecuted the church. He almost certainly killed or oversaw the execution of Christians. And I don't just mean, you know, bad men. We're talking families, people. Because they need to be removed and expunged from the covenant community. And if that means the loss of life of even the littlest ones, too bad. Paul. What about you? What haunts from your past? You know, maybe it's nothing. Praise God if that's you. But maybe it is something. Maybe it's something that just comes upon you every once in a while. Something you tried to shake, but in low moments, weird moments, unexplainable moments, it whispers in your ear. What haunts you from your past? Paul says, look, you, you can have false faith, and it might not be pitiful in the good times. You know, when everything's kind of going your way. Yeah. Me and Jesus are in the car driving together, you know, Jesus is my buddy, Jesus is my boyfriend, everything's great, you know, stock market's up, all is well. But as I look around this room, and I know most of you, I am well aware that suffering purifies such childish notions. So Paul says, hey, Peter's, James's, John's, Thomas's, Paul's, all of you who, if you had been there, would have fled in the same way. There's good news. This is of first importance because sin brings death and we're all guilty, but the Son brings life and has taken your guilt. He is risen is synonymous with he is the faithful one, the second Adam, the one who kept the covenant, the one who did it all. And if he is the faithful one, that means we now have full forgiveness. If he is risen, we have not and will not die in our sins. One scholar puts it this way, the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across your heart and all of human history so that nobody could miss it and you would never forget it. Resurrection changes your past because there's healing. Changes your present, which means there's ongoing help for us now. Because to be a Christian means to come into the family of God by faith, to now be justified, but we're being sanctified, we're being made holy, and it's ups and downs, folks, in our lives. So the resurrection doesn't just change everything in the past, it changes it now. It matters now. The question here is, what if you are struggling now? One philosopher said that our age could be described thus, as the age of great 
anxiety. You know, in the early 20th century, at the height of modernism, they, they really believed that, right, just like enough time and enough education and, and enough of these things, we could basically solve all the world's problems in about 20 years. Remember when you could have a computer the size of this room with like four kilobytes? Those people thought they were going to figure it out. Those people thought, you know, by 1920, we're going to be good. And then you had the 20th century, the bloodiest century, essentially, in all of human history. And what happened? This hope in humanity's eternal progress that marked modernism started to move into a more pessimistic age. And I know that for some of you here, truly, you kind of look around you at what's going on in the world. Maybe, God help you, you read the news. Lord, bless them and keep them, as they do. And you're kind of like, whoa, what happened? Like, everything we worked really hard for seems like it's sort of crumbling away a little bit. Or maybe you're in here and you're like, crumbling away, yeah, good riddance with all that nonsense. Now, the new world order, my generation, will save the day. It doesn't matter. Because the point is the same. The world only brings with it the anxiety of the uncertainty of the present. Optimism or pessimism, two binary poles which leave us constantly, as it were, ungrounded. But don't worry, if you feel ungrounded, go buy more things and you'll have dopamine and feel better for a minute. That's why Paul's so pointed with the Corinthians. With us, look, if Jesus is dead, there's no point. Not no point in the past or the future, no point now. Now is only for smiling and having fun and fake it till you make it. And we know your life is really broken right now, but just smile anyway, because all the other church people are smiling, because your power is all you've got. You are, as it were, a decent-looking, you know, flesh computer. So good luck. But if Jesus has risen, then the power of the resurrection and the newness of the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth that are breaking in, that is ours now. That's why Paul says in verse 2, the gospel isn't just that you were, quote, saved in the past. You are being saved. You are loved. You are free. Oh, Jesus, help us to live like that. Help me to really live like that. That I am known and I am loved now and I am free. That I am forgiven and so I can forgive others. And this is where I just want to give us a charge, a challenge, right, if you're a Christ church person. If you're a visitor, you can do whatever you want. If you're a regular, I feel like this is the charge. If we are fully forgiven, then might we, could we be agents of full forgiveness in the world around us? Christians are sometimes the worst at forgiving each other. I mean, if this is really real, we got to live like that. It's an upside down kingdom. We have to strive for that. That means, yes, men, women, strong, proud, Santa Feans, weirdos, here you are. That means dying to our pride and to ourselves. It means the humility of not coming to someone with our list of why we were right and they were wrong, but simply, I'm sure I was wrong in there somewhere. Will you forgive me? Because if the cross and the resurrection are real, that's the light that should be shining forth from the way that we live our lives together. Lastly, the resurrection just changes, changes your future. Oh, man, the world hope is so contingent. I mean, 
are you on the right side of history? <gasps> Few of you aren't for sure as I'm looking right at you. No, I'm just kidding. You know, we live in this world now where, where hope, future is so contingent. You know, and this, is, this isn't a right thing, a left thing, woke up, woke down, some are still asleep. It's in every quarter of the tribalistic world in which we now exist. If you're in the right group, believing the right things, then you're in. You're righteous for the next 48 seconds until they change what they believe. And if you're out, you're unrighteous. You know, people say, oh, well, it, you know, it's not as religious as it used to be in 2021. Are you kidding me? That's the most religious thing I ever heard in my life. If you're in the camp with the right beliefs about life and about justice and about all these things, you're in. Get yourself a secret handshake, pointy hat, and a ladder of being to climb. If you're not, you are out. Oh, and by the way, the power brokers of that little circle are always changing the rules on you. That's called hope that is no hope at all. And so my, one of my favorite theologians, Michael Horton, asked this simple question. In a system like that, is there any hope for the unrighteous? You know, who, those who aren't in the right circle at the right time with the right words and just the right way on the right side of history, like most of you, is there hope for the unrighteous, the outsider, those who still struggle? And Paul's answer is emphatically yes. If Jesus is risen, there is always hope. He has fulfilled every promise and no one, no one is too far. No one is too far from the reach of God. And he is on the march through our church, through the other churches in this city that are celebrating the resurrection right now to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Santa Fe, to reach out to those who genuinely feel like I'm hopeless. There's no way God could love me. I'm too far. I want nothing to do with it. Is there hope for the unrighteous? Yes. What a gift. And this is exactly the gift that we've been given that the world around us so desperately needs. So friends, I'll just say again, the offer is too good to not check out. You may have questions and doubts. You are in good company. The water is warm. Come to, to Jesus with those things because the offer is too good not to check out. I mean, what if it's true? What if the inheritance is yours? It's the promise we have in the finished work of Christ. That the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, our past, our present, our future. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys. To hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain. The man, Jesus Christ, lay death in his grave. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you that there's help and hope for churches just like ours, just like the Corinthians. Lord, we don't want our faith to be in vain. So would you... Remind us deeply in our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that Christ is risen. 
these things of first importance that Paul has delivered, not only to the church in ages past, but to us, Christ Church Santa Fe, today. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that when you rose, you ascended, and you went to go be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and you sent us your Holy Spirit, and you gave us this meal. And by your Holy Spirit, through this meal, you connect us to your real spiritual presence so that even if we've had a bad week or a great week, we don't feel justified on either account, but we are justified in you, the one who is both just and justifier. So bring us to this table now. Nurture us, your children. Feed us at this feast. Remind us of all your promises, that they are yes and amen for us because Christ is risen. Amen.